It's a bad feeling when you get down to the first row, you look up at the drum, and you're like, I wonder who's supposed to play that tonight. And you go, oh, that's me. I'm supposed to play that tonight. So I gave Ben a sheepish grin as I climbed the stairs midway through the first song. If you open your Bibles to Revelation 22, we are going to be looking at verses 6 through 21, the last leg here of our two-plus-year journey through the book of Revelation. I'm a little bit sad. It's a, I'm a little sad that it's ending, but uh, my brother Dave Shin reminded me at lunch today, you can always come back around and preach parts of Revelation uh, again. In fact, I just read a book by T. Desmond Alexander called From Eden to the New Jerusalem that made me wish I could re-preach chapters 21 in the beginning of 22, but uh, you know, maybe sometime in the future, but uh, all good things come to an end, and our study of Revelation comes to an end tonight as we look at the epilogue. Many of the world's most famous books and most famous poems have prologues and epilogues. The Canterbury Tales, The Divine Comedy, The Scarlet Letter, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, all of these have prologues and epilogues. The prologue frames the story before it starts. The epilogue concludes the story as it comes to an end. They are like two pieces of bread holding the sandwich together. Sandwiches, for the most part, are not defined by their bread. They're defined by what is in between the bread. So you might have a BLT, you might have a turkey and cheese, you might have a roast beef. And maybe you eat it on white, or you eat it on wheat, or you eat it on rye, But if somebody asks you what you had for lunch, you don't say, I had a rye sandwich or I had a wheat sandwich. You say, I had a turkey and cheese or whatever. The name of the sandwich is dictated by what is in between the bread. And yet, you have to have the bread in order to make the sandwich. The prologue and the epilogue of Revelation are the bread of the apocalyptic sandwich. We read the prologue to start our service tonight, Revelation 1, 1 through 8. And as I read our passage for tonight in just a moment, I think you'll see some parallels. You'll see some similarities. In both the prologue and the epilogue, we find the themes that have been there throughout the book in the seven cycles of Revelation. And those themes are the following. One, that Jesus is coming soon to his hearers. Number two, that Jesus is warning his hearers. And number three, that Jesus is inviting his hearers. So he's coming soon to them, he is warning them, he is inviting them. These themes are established in the prologue, they are repeated in the epilogue, and they encapsulate the entire message of the Bible's final book. The end of Revelation is actually one of the easiest parts of Revelation to study. It might be the most straightforward part of the entire book. It doesn't have anywhere close to the amount of sticky interpretive points that chapter 11 has, or certainly that chapters 19 through 21 have. But there is one thing that I want to point out before we read the text tonight, something that is a little bit odd. In these verses, you'll see that we have an angel talking to John. It's the same angel who has been showing him the bride city of the new Jerusalem in chapters 21 and 22. You see this clearly in verse 6, and he said to me, and it's talking about the angel, and yet as you keep going through the passage in my Bible, I happen to have a red letter Bible in front of me, there are these red letters because Jesus 
also is talking. Multiple times we have Jesus speaking in the first person in the passage. And there really seems to be no distinguishing between when the angel stops talking and when Jesus starts talking and when Jesus stops talking and the angel starts talking. It's odd. And you might say, well, why is this? Well, the answer comes in the fact that the angel and Jesus are not speaking different messages. They are preaching the same sermon. It's one message coming from two voices. A message so glorious that John cannot separate the voices. The power and the splendor of the message is so great that John is unable to tell where the angel's voice ends and Jesus' begins. And so he simply relays their unified message to us. And yet... It's clear when Jesus is talking because he takes on the first person. And so let's read it. Revelation 22, 6 through 21. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Father, you have been faithful to us throughout this study. You've been so good to me as a preacher. You've been so good to our church as expository listeners to the word. I thank you for the members who have gotten my study notes ahead of time so that they could keep up meticulously. I thank you for those who have uh, gone back and watched it over again on Facebook or listened to it over again on Spotify. Uh, I thank you, God, for just... The, the passion I've seen in our church for the Word of God through this study. I pray, Lord, that as we come again to this uh, wonderful book, Lord, which is such a great proof that the Word is from You. No man could sit down and write the book of Revelation 
without your spirit, uh, your spirit carrying him along. And so as we sit down before the glorious book one more time, I pray, God, that you would give us the insight and the understanding to be able to, to, to get what you are saying to us in it. And I pray that as the Proverbs uh, talk about, Lord, that we would look at wisdom as more valuable than gold, that we would look at understanding as more valuable than silver, and we would pursue it tonight as we come to your word, and you would give us the eyes to see, and you would give us the ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We start with the first apocalyptic theme of Revelation that we see in the epilogue. And maybe we could say this is the most important theme of the entire book of Revelation. Number one tonight, Jesus is coming soon to his hearers. I mean, this is what the book's about. Jesus is coming soon to his hearers. If Revelation is about anything, it's about Jesus coming again. Whether you are a dispensationalist, or you are a historic premillennialist, or you are an amillennialist, or a postmillennialist, terms we have defined throughout our study, you believe that Jesus is returning. Just as he says in his epilogue on three different occasions. He says it in verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon. He says it in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. He says it in verse 20. Surely, I am coming soon. A couple things to highlight about his promise to return. Number one, he speaks in the present tense. I am coming. He doesn't say, I will come. He says, I am coming. And what it shows is that Christ is already on his way tonight. Have you ever texted someone you're meeting up with? And you say, where are you at? You're waiting on them. And they respond and they say, I am on my way. You take that to mean they are presently making progress, right? They're on their way to you. If they say, I will be on my way soon, you think, this joker hasn't even left their house yet. I'm going to be here a long time. Jesus doesn't say, I will come. He says, I am coming, meaning he is on his way as we speak. He is currently at work tonight. He is moving the events of history along that are going to culminate in his return, and he is sovereignly governing over every single detail. There's a couple places where Jesus speaks of what he's doing He says, in my Father's house, in John 14, there are many rooms. If it were not so, but I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And so Jesus is preparing the place for us. He is preparing the new Jerusalem for us. Even more clearly, he tells us what work is being done as the new Jerusalem is being built. Matthew 24, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So he is gathering up his people from the nations through the preaching of the gospel. Once the gospel not only reaches every shore, but I believe saves a multitude from every shore, once we've got gospel outposts, we've got local churches in every single people group that are thriving and that are preaching, at some point the last convert is going to repent and put their faith in Jesus. The last brick is going to be put in the temple. And then Jesus is going to return. And so this work is happening right now. 
He's governing over it. His spirit is the agent at work as his people are preaching the gospel and taking the gospel to the nations. You want to talk about motivation for mission work, this is it. To bring about the second coming. You might think, doesn't everybody already know it's the internet age? Well, the Joshua Project says there are 17,446 people groups on the earth. And by their count, 7,391 of them are unreached. Meaning that there is no one in that people group to tell them about Jesus. That the people in that people group don't know a single person who could explain the gospel to them. But Jesus is working. And His people are getting to them. This is why, and I'll talk about this more on Sunday, when we think about mission work in the church... Primarily what we should be thinking about is starting churches where there are not churches. Seeing the Bible translated into every single heart language and raising pastors up to shepherd those churches. That is the essence of the global mission that we are on. And at the end of that mission, Jesus will return. But right now, through his people's work, he is making preparations. He is building his kingdom, present tense. He is on his way. Secondly, let's deal with the word soon, because in verse 7, in verse 12, and in verse 20, he uses that word. He says he's coming soon. Surely he's coming soon. Is this really true? Is Jesus really coming soon? Didn't he say this 2,000 years ago? Well, he did. And there are some people who mock Christianity and mock Christ because they say, well, listen, he said soon. He hasn't come back yet. This God is slow and slack concerning His promises. The Bible tells us it would be this way. In 2 Peter 3, Peter says there's going to be people who mock the faith because the Lord has not returned yet. He says, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. What these scoffers do not realize is that a thousand years are as a day to the Lord, and a day to the Lord is as a thousand years. What these scoffers do not realize is that these are the last days. The gospel age, the church age is this time in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. So... Unlike the Old Testament patriarchs, the Old Testament prophets, Old Testament saints, you and I are living in the final leg of history's race. Revelation has been telling us these things must soon take place. The first verse of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Some of these things have already taken place. Some of the things we've read about in the book of Revelation have happened in the past tense. Some of them are happening in the present tense, and some of them are going to happen in the future. But the Ancient of Days is unfolding his plan according to his purpose. He's not doing it on the timetable of man. On the timetable of man, it may not seem like it has been soon. Jesus is working on his timetable. Joel Beakey says, Christ's foot is on the stairs of your personal life because he's coming soon. As well as of all of history, he is coming. And since these are the last days and his second coming is soon, 
We must heed Paul's words to the Romans. Romans 13, 11, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. One time I heard Stephen Lawson, who's one of my favorite preachers, one of my favorite expositors. I commend him to you. He's a great uh, pastor to listen to. He's got a ton of sermons out there that you can go and track down, and you're not going to go wrong with any of them. And Lawson said one time, he told a story about a man and a woman who had an old grandfather clock in their bedroom. And this man and his wife would wake up each day and they would check the time. And one day it broke and the man tried to fix it and he said, uh, honey, it's not, it's not fixable, it's gone, it's over. We keep it there for the prettiness, we can keep it there for the looks, we can keep it there for the memories, but it's never going to tell time again. She said, well, how will we know what time it is when we wake up? And he says, well, when we wake up, it's always later than it has ever been. And if you think about it, that is true. It's always later than it's ever been. Jesus is coming back soon. His return is closer now than it's ever been. It's closer than it was when we started the study of Revelation. It's closer than it was when I was born in 1984. It's closer than it was in 1900 at the turn of the century. It is closer now than ever. By the time I finish this sermon, it'll be even closer than it is right now as I am presently talking. The seconds are ticking by. He is coming soon, but it's on his timetable. This is why the angel, this idea of soon, him coming soon, this is why the angel tells John, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of the book. He says this in verse 10. And it's because the time is near. Compare that with what he said to Daniel an Old Testament prophet, an Old Testament saint. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision. Seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Daniel's apocalyptic vision would not come to pass for some time. The Messiah had not even been born yet, but now the Messiah has come. He has lived, he has died, he has resurrected, he has ascended, his mission has been accomplished. And so the prophecy is to remain unsealed because the Lord is coming soon. What will Jesus do when he returns? We get our answers in verses 11 and 12. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. On the surface, you read verse 11 and it kind of seems fatalistic to us. You're like, what's being said here? I'm coming soon. If you're not saved, keep not being saved. And if you're saved, then keep being saved. That's not what's being said. That wouldn't make any sense. Instead, what the Scripture is speaking to here is the finality of judgment once Christ returns. Right now, there's hope for the soul. Sometimes people say to me, what if I'm not elect? What if I'm not one of God's chosen ones? And I go, well, repent. Repent right now. You got breath in your lungs? Turn away from your sin. Put your trust in Christ right now as we're talking. We're going to talk about the invitation in this passage in a moment. But what verses 11 and 12 are showing us is there is going to come a time when there will not be hope for the soul. 
There comes a time when the invitation is withdrawn and final judgment takes place. There's no more opportunities for repentance. It reminds us of Jesus' parable of the ten virgins. In the story, there's a wedding celebration. There are ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom to arrive. The bridegroom represents Jesus. The virgins represent those who are waiting on him to come back. Five of them represent true believers. They bring extra olive oil, keep their lamps burning, meaning they're ready for the bridegroom. But the other five represent those who claim to be true believers, but are not. They fall away, proving they never knew the Lord in the first place. They're the foolish virgins. At midnight, the bridegroom arrives, the wise virgins light their lamps with the extra oil. The foolish ones are unprepared. And so, the promise is shut to them. The marriage celebration is shut to them. Matthew 25, 11 and 12. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. When the Lord returns, it's too late to go buy more oil. It's too late to repent. If you die before he returns, the Bible tells us that at the end of this life comes judgment. So you will stand before his bar, and it will be too late to repent. Those who do not light their lamps will have their lamps unlit forever. And when it says to us in verse 11, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy, it's actually talking about the attitude of the heart in eternal judgment. Those who do not love the Lord now will not love the Lord forever. In fact, they will hate the Lord forever in hell. They won't be laughing together as the old Billy Joel song suggested. They will be judged for their wickedness and they will rage against the Lord in their hearts for eternity. They will be kept out, the unrepentant dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. We see this in verse 15. On the other hand, Those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb will receive the reward of eating from the tree of life as it produces its fruit. They will enter the gates of pearl. They will be a part of God's people forever under the loving care and the protection of King Jesus, the bridegroom. This is the inheritance of those who come out of the tribulation of this age. If you remember from Revelation 7, verses 13 and 14, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Those who have washed their robes will continue to rejoice in the Lord for all of eternity. They will continue to be holy. They will continue to do right things as they serve Him on the new earth. As believers, you and I are longing for this. We, we, we desire this. You see the Spirit leading the bride to ask for Jesus' return in verse 17. Come. And whoever hears the words of Christ should say, come. In verse 20, John responds to Jesus' promise that He's coming soon by saying, Amen, so be it. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. And this ought to be the heart cry of of every single one of us, of every single believer, 
And it has been the predominant theme of the entire book from the prologue to the epilogue. Revelation 1, verse 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him, even so, Amen. And the reason that we long for this is because we long to be free from the suffering of this present age. We want to be with Him. And we don't just want to be with Him, but we want to be glorified. We want to have our resurrected bodies and be like Him when He appears. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. You say, all this is awesome, but how do I know it's true? Well, we know because of the One who is making these promises to us. Look at verse 6. These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. So who has promised these things? The Lord. Who is God over the souls of the prophets who were carried along by the Spirit to preach His message throughout the ages. So just as His words to Moses and Elijah are true, just as his words to Isaiah and Jeremiah are true, just as his words to Daniel and Ezekiel are true, the words of Christ to us regarding his second coming are true. They can be trusted. He is the God behind every prophecy. He is the truth. And every word from his mouth is true. And all that he says is going to come to pass. We don't base our hope in the second coming on a feeling, or on sentiment, or on trying to read the tea leaves or the newspaper. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses tried to do. They said, Jesus is coming back in 1914. Didn't happen. They said, oh, he came back. It was just in spirit. But the apocalypse will happen before all the people who are alive in 1914 die. And then it got to like 1995, and they're like, man, all these people are dying. Apocalypse hasn't happened yet. So then they changed their language. They said, oh, it's going to happen sometime soon. And they got very general with the language. Because it was based on the feelings and the sentiments of a man, Charles Taze Russell. It wasn't based on the objective word of God. We're not basing this stuff on feelings or sentiment. We're basing this on the very word of God. We're not a people primarily informed by our feelings, by our experiences, by our reason, by what we can measure in a science lab. We are a revelational people unapologetically. We base our hope on that which God has revealed to us. And furthermore, he has not just said this one time with his trustworthy and true words. Here in his epilogue, three different times he says he's coming. Verse 7, verse 12, verse 20. In the Hebrew world, when you say something three times, that's important. It conveys permanence. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, right? Not just holy, not just holy, holy. He's holy, 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 forever and always holy. Holy, holy, holy above anything else that is holy. Totally other. Totally transcendent. Well, here we have a fixed, permanent promise from Jesus. It's not that just he's coming soon, or he's coming soon, coming soon. He's coming soon, coming soon, coming soon. He's coming. It's going to happen. And we should say, amen, even so come. Jesus is 
coming soon to his hearers. Number two, Jesus is warning his hearers. We have a threefold promise to come soon. We have a threefold warning to the hearers of the book of Revelation. The first is in verses 7 through 9. It's a warning to keep the words of the book. The second is in verses 10 and 11. It's a warning not to seal up the words of the book. And the third is in verses 18 and 19. It's a warning not to alter the words of the book. So let's deal with each one of these briefly. First of all, we have, as we talk about keeping the words, the sixth beatitude of Revelation. We've had seven cycles, seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And along the way, there's been seven Beatitudes. And I wish that we had focused on them more, if I'm being honest with you. But we make up for lost time tonight. The first Beatitude came in the prologue. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. There was another one in chapter 14, verse 13. Another in 16, verse 15. Another in 19 verse 9, and yet another in 20 verse 6. And there are two in the epilogue. Verse 7, and the one that we already looked at in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Verse 7, the sixth beatitude of Revelation says, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So it's a promise of a blessing. You keep the words of the prophecy of this book, you're going to be blessed. Favor of God will be upon you. But the inverse of that is true as well. If you don't keep the words of the book, you'll be cursed. If you wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb and say, faithful to Him... Through tribulation, you'll have the favor of God upon you as a gift of grace. If you do not keep the words and do not wash the robes, you will be cursed. You will find yourself outside with the dogs and the immoral. In verses 8 and 9, John does the same thing he did after seeing Babylon the harlot. He bows down to the angel, attempts to worship him. And the angel does the same thing he did before. He says, hey, don't do that. Instead, you need to do what everyone else who keeps the words of Revelation must do. You must worship God. So blessed is the one that worships God. Who keeps the words of the book and worships Him. Cursed is the one who does not keep the words of the book and does not worship Him. See, many people want to take Revelation and turn it into a scroll of secret codes. When in reality, it's a scroll of sanctification. It is a book pushing us away from ourselves, away from Satan, away from the beasts, away from the world, and it's pushing us to the throne of the Lord God Almighty in worship. It is pushing us to forsake the world and to follow the Lamb who is slain but standing, whatever it costs us. Those who are the bride of Christ must keep the words of the bridegroom. We've already seen how, unlike Daniel, John is told not to seal up the words of the prophecy of the book. This is the second warning to the hearers of Christ. Don't seal up the words. These words of Jesus in Revelation, the teachings of Jesus in Revelation, the teachings about His second coming are not to be placed under a bowl, not to be hidden These are not words to be ashamed of. These are not words to be bashful about. These are words that must be proclaimed. These are words that must be preached. These are words that must be propagated throughout the whole earth. 
I think this is another clue to us that we should stray away from interpretations of revelation that could never be understood by the first century believers. We should not be interpreting the book with newspapers and current events, but with our Old Testament open, knowing that from the very first generation, those who received these letters in Asia Minor, the call was to go and preach this, go and tell, not hide it away. And in order for them to be able to go and to preach it and to teach it, they had to understand it. And then finally, as we proclaim the book, we are not to tinker with it. We are not to add to it. We are not to take away from it. Look at verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. John is speaking specifically about the book of Revelation here. Now a lot of people, they will say you can't add to the Bible, you can't take away from the Bible, and they will quote this passage. But he is speaking specifically about Revelation. The words of the book of this prophecy. He's talking about Revelation. However, there is no problem with applying these words to the other 65 books of the Bible. You can do that safely. There is no part of God's Word that it is okay to take away from or to add to. If you look at verse 17, there is this gospel offer to the world. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take, uh, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This is an offer to eternal life for anyone who will believe. But if they're going to believe, they must hear the word of God preached. When they hear the word of God preached, they must hear the full counsel of the gospel. What is the full counsel of the gospel? Well, it's the message of the Bible. And it's everything we're seeing condensed in this passage. Because the message of Scripture really is condensed into... It's not just the message of Revelation we're seeing in the epilogue. It's the message of the whole Word. It's sin and the warning of judgment. It's grace and the offer of life. It's salvation by the blood of Jesus. It's the impending return of the King who died and resurrected and ascended. And this full counsel of the Gospel must be preached in order for people to be saved. Sometimes people want to take away from this message that runs through the course of Scripture and through the course of Revelation. They want to domesticate the Gospel. They want to make it less about sin, less about judgment. I'm just here to tell good news. Maybe I heard a preacher from Texas maybe say that. They don't like the language we see in verse 15. I'll just say his name. You will never hear Joel Osteen preach Revelation 22:15. You're just not going to hear it. He's not going to preach it. He's not going to get in a pulpit and talk about dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters being locked outside the kingdom. And so some people want to domesticate it, make it more acceptable to the modern taste buds or the postmodern taste buds. They want to tame Jesus. Talk about him as a moral sage who teaches a way of life. They don't want to talk about him as the king of the kingdom. The problem with that is he's not just a moral teacher. He's the root and the descendant of David the king. He is the rightful heir to Israel's throne, superior to David himself. You can't treat him like a spiritual sage because he's not just some spiritual sage. 
He's the bright morning star that has risen out of Jacob with a scepter in his hand to crush and break his enemies. You hear people say sometimes, well, I like the God of the Old Testament. I don't like, or I like the God of the New Testament. I don't like the God of the Old Testament. So you just haven't read the New Testament enough then. If you think it's different. Because what the Old Testament tells us about Jesus, God in the flesh, is that he will crush the forehead of his enemies. He will break them down. Listen to this prophecy from the Old Testament. Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. You can't take away from the Word and try to make Jesus something He is not. You must surrender to Him as He is. But there are others who want to add to the Word of God. There are people who want to say... It's Jesus plus something that equals salvation. It's Jesus plus some sort of good work you got to do. It's Jesus plus some sort of theology that you need to learn. It's Jesus plus you don't do this bad thing that's not explicitly forbidden in Scripture, but I've decided we shouldn't do it if we're real Christians. It's Jesus plus you have to homeschool. I can say that because I homeschool. Don't think there's not people like that, right? Well, the only true Christians are the, one that's, the ones that don't have their kids in public school. Well, if we believe the Word is sufficient and the Word doesn't say that, we shouldn't be trying to add to the Word by making it Jesus plus something. See, some theological conservatives, which I would say that we are a church that is theologically conservative, were quick to point out when the theological liberals have tampered with God's Word and tried to take away from it because they believe it had error in it or they believe that it can fail us in some way. But as theological conservatives, we have to be careful that we do not add to the Word, thus showing we don't trust in its sufficiency as it is. Taking away from the Word will create a different gospel. That's how cults are started. Talked about the Jehovah's Witnesses. Where do you think they came from? They came from taking away with the Word of God. They came from uh, tinkering with the Word of God. Where do you think Mormonism came from? It came from a guy named Joseph Smith creating a different gospel by taking away from the Word. And those trusting in that different gospel will not taste the tree of life, will not share in the New Jerusalem. But if you add to the Word, you're also creating a different gospel. And those trusting in that different gospel will have the plagues of revelation added to them, thus missing out on the blessings of eternal life. Only the true gospel of Jesus saves. A.W. Tozer said, only the whole Bible will make a whole Christian. Nothing more, nothing less. We need to follow the example of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And then lastly tonight, our final theme, Jesus is inviting His hearers. He's telling His hearers He's coming soon. He's warning His hearers. And Jesus is inviting His hearers. Much like the three promises to come soon, much like the three warnings in the passage, there are also three invitations. Two of them are actually the church or John asking Jesus to come. Verse 17, it's the Spirit and the Bride saying to Jesus, come. 
And anyone else who hears should join in on saying, Jesus, come. In verse 20, come Lord Jesus, John says. But the invitation I want to focus on for our final theme is the one we touched on briefly in verse 17. Back at the beginning of chapter 22, we saw the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Just as he has throughout Revelation and throughout the Scriptures, God is inviting the listeners to come and drink from this river of life while there is still time. This is what he's saying in verse 17. Let the one who is thirsty come. We see God talking this way through the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah 55, verse 1 and 2. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. We see it in the New Testament when Jesus speaks to the woman at the well in John 4. Give me a drink, Jesus says to her, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is, that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And he's spoken this way in Revelation, chapter 21, verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. In verse 13, Jesus repeats those words from 21.6. He says he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It's important that he is the one issuing this invitation, the Alpha and the Omega. If you told me you got an invitation to stay at the White House, and I said, that's amazing. So who gave you this invitation? You said, well, my cousin knows a guy who knows a janitor there. I say, I don't think you're staying at the White House. I hate to break it to you. I don't think it's happening. But if you got an invitation and I said, who did it come from? You said the President of the United States of America. I would say, well, that's amazing. you got to tell me what it's like to stay at the White House. It's like my favorite uh, children's book and one of my favorite movies of all time, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, depending on if you're talking about the book or the movie. I don't acknowledge the Johnny Depp movie. We're going to pretend it didn't happen. Timothy Chalamet is pretty good, the new one. Uh, But in, in that movie and in the book, Charlie... Is, is, is leaving and he's sad. He's leaving the store and, and, and he's sad because all the golden tickets have been found. And he finds some money and he knows he's not going to get a golden ticket because they've all been found. So he just goes and he buys himself this chocolate bar. And then he gets one more for his Grandpa Joe. And on the way out of the store, he hears that golden ticket that was found, the fifth one, was a counterfeit. It wasn't real. And so he gets excited his heart leaps. Can it be? He opens up the Wonka bar, drops it on the ground. He doesn't even care about the chocolate anymore. He's got the golden ticket. He runs home. He gets there, and his whole family called him a liar. They're like, you're pulling our leg, Charlie. 
the fifth golden ticket was already found. He said, no, 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 it's a fake. They said, no, yours is a fake. He says, no, look at it. And Grandpa Joe reads it, and he gets excited at the end because he says, from Mr. Willy Wonka. And Grandpa Joe realizes this is the real ticket because it's signed by Willy Wonka. And so he goes to the chocolate factory. Well, this invitation to drink the water of life It's not coming from a servant in the kingdom. It's coming from the king himself. The alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. And it is signed in the blood of the Messiah. And if that is the case, then you can be sure the invitation is as good as the blood it's signed in. The God of all creation is saying, come, have life eternal. Come, be satisfied in me forever. As we close this up tonight, we close up Revelation in general, it can feel a bit daunting. Even these big picture themes we've talked about tonight can feel overwhelming, that he's coming again soon, and he's warning his hearers to listen, he's inviting his hearers to live forever. You look at the state of the world and you wonder, man, how can we stay faithful in the midst of this tribulation-filled, false gospel-ridden, harlot of a world. You might look over at other brothers and sisters suffering around the world under the beastly governments and secretly wonder, would my faith even hold up under that? And Satan might whisper to you, no, it wouldn't. I want to encourage you with the final two sentences of the Bible tonight. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. It's a benediction for believers. Not too different from the benediction we say when we leave here every single Sunday. And what it tells us is that we are not alone in this tribulation-filled world. The grace of the Lord Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the coming King, is with us. We are not on our own. The undeserved love of the bridegroom is upon His bride. I want you to remember that Revelation was meant to encourage. It was written to believers suffering under the monstrous, beastly Roman Empire. They had seen their brothers and sisters killed. The churches were faltering. They were filled with flaws. Where is their hope? Well, Revelation was a call to them and a call to us to get our eyes up over the sun, to look above the horizon, get our eyes off of this world, see the One who is coming, and to hold fast to Him. Consider the promised reward and to be joyful in affliction. Thomas Brooks said, God in the great day talking about the day of His second coming, will declare to men and angels how often His people have been pouring out their souls before Him in such and such corners and secret places, and accordingly He will reward them. And Christians, did you really believe and seriously dwell on this? You would walk more thankfully, work more cheerfully, suffer more patiently, fight against the world, the flesh and the devil more courageously, lay out yourselves for God, His interest and glory more freely, live with what providence hath cut out for your portion more quietly and contentedly, and you would be in private prayer more frequently and abundantly. Jesus is coming soon. Look to the clouds where He will come in glory. Walk in thanks, work cheerfully, suffer patiently, 
fight sin and the devil. Go all in for the Lord and His glory and be content with what He has given you. And stay praying early, often, and always. Even so come. Amen. Father, we thank You for the book. We thank You for the truth of it. We thank You for the encouragement we've received. Be glorified, God, in our lives as we wait on Your Son to return. We don't wait idly. We keep our lamps burning. We're gathering extra oil. We're taking the gospel to the nations. Use us, God. Use us and keep us from being used by the devil. Keep our eyes on you and off of the harlot of this world. Keep us obedient to you and not to the beasts of this world. Hold on to us, Lord, and help us hold on to you. We can't wait to see your son and to be like him when we see him as he is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We love you, church. Thanks for being here tonight, and we will see you back here on Sunday or at Upward this weekend.